0: This is number three in our uh, new series in this Old Testament book of Esther and what a gripping story it is. The first two chapters of Esther are basically an introduction that that I think tries to do two things. First of all, chapter one paints the kind of world that this story takes place within and we were thinking about that uh, last week. You can catch up on that uh, online uh, during the week if you missed it. But then in chapter 2 now, we say hello to the two main characters. Um, And we find out, in a sense, how they experience living in this dysfunctional kingdom. So in a way, last week we were looking at a top-down approach, thinking about the kingdom... This week is very much more a kind of bottom-up approach, thinking about how it feels to live in this empire. Today we're really asking, what did it feel like? How, how do you feel today? We say this, don't we? How, how are you? I'm fine. Okay. How are you feeling? How do you feel today? How, what was it like for them to live in this empire? I want us to try and climb into their shoes and get under how Mordecai and Esther feel as they live in this dysfunctional kingdom. So here we go. In this, I, I want to try and highlight three things. And then we'll try and tease out some conclusions. Um, and I, I, yeah, I hope we'll finish before Tuesday in, in doing that. Three, three things that I think it'll be helpful for us as we think about how they're feeling. In this kingdom, Esther and Mordecai, I feel, first of all, very deeply vulnerable. Have you ever felt vulnerable? First of all, I want to say two things under this. First of all, we can see this very clearly in the abusive process that they are suddenly exposed to in this chapter. At the start of chapter 2, four years have passed since last weekend. <laughs> four years have passed since the king, in a drunken rage, had banished his queen. But Vashti saying no was just the start of a series of bad things that happened to Xerxes. His military campaign in the meantime in Greece had been an abject failure. His army had possibly been ten times bigger, but the Greeks, he found to his cost, were a lot smarter. I don't know if you've seen the film 300, or you you may have read about the Battle of Thermopylae, where 300 Spartans held off hundreds of thousands of Persian the the Persian army. Very famous battle in a narrow pass to allow the Greeks to regroup. And in the end, Xerxes had to return home seriously humbled. I I wonder whether Chapter Two of Esther begins. With a subtle hint of regret. Does the king have second thoughts? He well remembers Vashti. He remembers what he did to her. Four years before. But she's not there to comfort him now. And he knows that there's no going back. And historians have described this king. In this moment. As a brooding and self-indulgent man. Everyone in the royal court can see. That the king needs lifting out of the bad mood that he's in. And the unpredictable rage that he sometimes seems to display. So in verse 2 here. One of his advisers puts his head above the parapet. And risks it all by suggesting something to cheer the king up. No time for regrets, O oh King. Here's what we'll do. What they suggest is an appalling abuse of power, though, isn't it? Just look at verses 2 to 4. It seems clear that this is not just a beauty parade that's being proposed. For the king, it, it's actually a kind of sex competition. The woman in the empire who pleases the king the most will get to replace Vashti. as the queen of Persia. And this is a competition with no choice. The, the, this doesn't appear in an advert in a TV show, and you can apply if you want to join. If you were young and pretty, you were automatically entered into this competition. Estimates vary as to how many young women might have been involved in this, from a few hundred to a couple of thousand. Just think for a moment of all the young women across this massive empire who were suddenly forced to say goodbye to family and friends, maybe even to boyfriends and fiancés. This is basically state-sponsored trafficking. Kidnap and rape. Later on. In verse 12. And 13 and 14. We find that the king spares no expense. In these young women being prepared. To meet him. For 12 months. For a whole year. Each woman was subject to expensive spa treatments with exotic lotions and Persian perfumes. Exfoliation, what's that? It doesn't say that in the passage, I just know that word and I've always wondered what it was. They, they do this under the supervision of the king's eunuch, Haggai. I, I wonder whether it was 12 months in order to make sure that none of these young girls were pregnant when they arrived. Or maybe to them... It felt more like how an animal feels being fattened up for the slaughter. These young women here, all, all of them, endure the agony of waiting in a long queue to spend one night with the king. In verse fourteen, we realise that there are, there are in fact two sections to this harem. The first is for the new models to get ready. But there's another part to this harem which is for the used models who are discarded. That's a totally different kind of waiting, isn't it? If you didn't make the grade, you would never go home. You would never marry or have a family. You would live like a widow in the seclusion of this luxurious harem for the rest of your life. All of this to satisfy... The bruised ego of a depressed king. I think the point of all this is that in this world, the weak only seem to exist to satisfy the needs of the powerful. This is the atmosphere that Esther is forcibly dragged into in verse 8. And I think the author is trying to show us something of the odds. I'm not really a betting man, but what are the chances of Esther even surviving this ordeal, let alone winning in such a brutal competition like this? I think there's a second note of vulnerability here, though, In verse 5, the author interrupts the narrative about this competition to introduce Mordecai and Esther to us. And we learn there that Esther is very beautiful. And so we begin to realize where this is heading. (laughs) But the end of verse 7 tells us that although Mordecai and Esther are technically cousins, he had actually adopted her as his own when her parents had both died and Mordecai had brought her up as his own daughter. So it turns out that Esther is an orphan. And I think their relationship in this chapter and in this book seems a very sweet one. In verse 11, we get a glimpse of Mordecai's fatherly care as he paces up and down outside the harem's quarters trying to pick up on little... Um, bits of news about how Esther's doing in there later on in verse 20 in this chapter we get a sense of Esther's deep respect for him as well she she continued to follow Mordecai's instructions as she had done when he was bringing her up it seems like there's a lot of love and and closeness and sweetness in their relationship But one poignant detail that stuck me here was that as Esther completes her own beauty treatments and the the day comes for her to spend her one night with the king, as she begins her own slow walk from the harem to the king's chambers, just look at how she's described in verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, And in my Bible, as brackets here, the girl Mordecai had adopted the daughter of his uncle, Abby Hale. This is the only place where the author mentions by name the father that Esther has lost. In her most vulnerable moment, we're reminded that she's also experiencing the deep emotion of, of loss so these two have faced the trauma of exile and they face the trauma of bereavement and now Esther and Mordecai in a sense face the trauma of her being forcibly taken into a hopeless captivity within a captivity how do they feel how do they feel deeply Deeply, profoundly vulnerable. I, I think the second thing that they feel, perhaps, is something of being morally conflicted. And I, I want to say three things, I think, under this. Is it three? I think it's three. Forgive me if there's four, but I think there's three. The way we, we looked at verse five to seven already as the author interrupts the narrative to introduce them but the way they're introduced by the author hints at something of the tension that these two people are living with when we look again at verse five it sounds pretty harmless to us but if you were a jewish person reading this it would sound like someone was scratching their nails down a blackboard First of all, we're told that in the citadel there lived a Jew. Don't don't skip over that and miss the impact and the shock of that. This is not just the city, but the citadel within the city. And this is a big hint, I think, that Modi as a Jewish man, is somehow working for the government in an official capacity. He's a civil servant. In the Persian administration. There's nothing wrong with that. But you, you know I, I, I think that the Jews were scrupulous in being set apart from other nations. They've, their food laws and religious observance marked them out distinctively as being the people of God in this era. But there's no hint here of Mordecai in any way standing out as a Jewish man. Worse still is his name. The name Mordecai, for obvious reasons, later becomes a very popular Jewish name. But actually, it's a Persian name derived from a Babylonian god named Marduk. So Mordecai here has been born to Jewish parents in exile in a pagan country and they've named their child after a pagan god. Is this a sign of them trying to fit in? And the author is very particular notice in verse 5 about giving Mordecai's pedigree, if you like. A Jew of the tribe of Benjamin named Mordecai, son of Jer, son of Shimei, son of Kish, who'd been carried into exile from Jew. He He goes overboard, doesn't he, in giving the guy's Jewish pedigree. And yet it seems that Mordecai, for the moment at the very least, is hiding his true identity as a Jewish man and keeping his head down. This, this will become very relevant next week as the plot unfolds, so just park that away for now. But we do find something similar to when we're introduced to his cousin, Esther. She also here seems conflicted. She has two names. Her her given name is Hadassah, a Jewish name. But she also has a Persian name. And the the Jews were deadly serious about not marrying non-Israelites. But Esther here is drawn into a contest that will end up with her sleeping with a pagan king and ultimately marrying him. All of this is to highlight that these two individuals here are experiencing what we might call an identity crisis. They seem to have a foot in two camps. Are they they still Jewish? Or are they slowly becoming Persian? Are they they still believing in God? or, Or is that kind of somewhere in the background now for them? I think that overflows, secondly, into the secrecy that hints, I think, at the fear they must be feeling. In verse 10, the author tells us that Esther had not revealed her nationality or her family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. This is crucial to the plot. And the author emphasizes it again in verse 20. It's, it's very important. The, the author doesn't tell us why Mordecai gave her that advice. It definitely serves to ramp up the tension. No one really knows who these people really are. If they're discovered, it seems like they're going to suffer for it. They're in danger. And it looks like at this moment they're keeping their heads down to avoid conflict because they're afraid. But thirdly, I think the authors... It's very interesting the way the author writes this because there's a silence about their motives here that hints at the compromises that they seem to be making. Some commentators in history have condemned... Mordecai and Esther very strongly as being weak. So for example I I came across just in my research into this a 15th century Jewish commentator who wrote this. Listen, listen, this is powerful. Why, Why did Mordecai not keep righteous Esther From idol worship. Why was he not more careful? Where was his righteousness. His piety. And his valour. And then listen to this. Esther too. Should by right. Have tried to commit suicide. Before allowing herself. To have intercourse. With Xerxes. A pagan king. That's a Jewish commentator commenting on Mordecai's and Xerxes' kind of moral standing. Why did Mordecai not refuse to allow Esther to go? And why does Esther go along with it? Why were they not more like the parents of Moses who defied Pharaoh and hid baby Moses in a basket? Why were they not more like Daniel? He refused a pagan king's food. But the author says nothing at all anywhere about their motives. On the one hand, the language is very passive. In verse 8, Esther is taken and entrusted and moved and assigned. The language, all of these verbs are things that happen to her. The implication is that she has no choice you get the sense that she's a victim in all of this but on the other hand you you have to admit that Esther is all action once she gets into the palace in verse 9 she wins the favour of Haggai almost immediately and gets moved into the five star penthouse suite where she enjoys the best food, the best beauty treatments, she gets given maids to look after her and the truly remarkable thing Is that Esther manages to totally captivate the king in one encounter, and rather than sending her back to the part of the harem that's for the used models, Xerxes immediately crowns Esther queen in place of Vashti and proclaims a national holiday. So, what do you think of Esther? (laughs) How does she feel? Perhaps she hated every moment of it. Maybe this violated every truth she stood for. And she felt ashamed of what she'd been forced to do. Or perhaps she loved it. Was swept off her feet. Caught up in the attention of powerful men. And the luxurious surroundings. Is she cowering and trembling here? Or is she relishing at all? And what about Mordecai? How does he feel? Is he being wise? Or is he being a coward? At no point is there any word of protest from either of them about any of this. But the striking thing is that the author makes no judgment, does he? Or she? On any of this. He doesn't praise them or condemn them. He doesn't flatten them into heroes or villains. We love to do that, don't we? He just tells us what happened. And I think when we put all of that together, isn't this ambiguity sometimes how life is... for all of us can't we see here reflected in them our own conflicts our scars our fears the compromises we sometimes make how did they fail how do you feel? Thirdly, I just want to briefly touch on the little section at the end of chapter two, from verse nineteen to twenty-three, in relation to Mordecai. This is an odd little kind of postscript to the chapter. Store this store this away too, because this little incident is crucial to the plot. In fact, you could argue that the whole book hinges on what happens. In this little encounter here. But how sad it is to begin with. We find Mordecai sitting at the king's gate. Where he just happens to overhear. A plot to assassinate the king. He gets a message to Esther. Who in turn tells the king. And giving full credit to Mordecai. The matter is investigated properly and the culprits are found and some, it's a hard Hebrew word to translate, some versions say hanged. Some commentators think it means to be impaled on a spike. It's it's like a big deterrent. (laughs) Um, There's no reward or promotion For poor Mordecai, though, he's just saved the king's life. It is carefully recorded. But there's no recognition or reward. And I wonder whether, in this environment, Mordecai simply doesn't belong. His face doesn't fit. He's totally unnoticed. And even when he loyally does the right thing, it's sadly overlooked. I I wonder whether some of you, some of us, might recognize what that feels like. Do I really belong? Why does no one notice? Even when I do the right thing, no one appreciates it. So here's Mordecai being unfairly forgotten. The author is showing us the kind of environment and then in this chapter giving us a glimpse of what it felt like for God's people to live in this kind of place. How did they feel? Deeply vulnerable, morally conflicted and one of them is unfairly forgotten. But what else can you see here in this chapter? I think the unspoken backdrop to all of this is what God is silently doing in and even through all of this human messiness. Somehow, by the end of chapter 2, Esther is queen, and Mordecai is in the official record as a loyal subject who has saved the king's life. Despite how they might feel, I want to suggest that this story invites us to marvel at three things. So I want to give you a little triangle. Um, And here's the first point of it. I want to call it the mystery of God's providence. When we talk of the providence of God, we're talking about God being the sovereign king over all human affairs. Sometimes I like playing snooker. I'm not very good. I'm a rank amateur when it comes to playing snooker. I I feel pleased if I can pot two or three balls in a row. But the real you'll you'll know if you know the game snooker. The real key to the game is being able to control where the white cue ball lands after every shot. And I want to suggest here that even though God is not mentioned at all. His positional play here is exceptional. There are now two people exactly where God planned for them to be. who will ultimately turn this story inside out and they will be the means of saving the people of God from being annihilated and wiped out. The reason we call this a mystery is because I think it's impossible for us to fully know How the plans and purposes of God interact with the selfish choices of people who are acting in their own interest. No one made Xerxes show off or banish his queen. No one made Xerxes attack Greece. No one made him oversee an abusive sex competition. No one made Mordecai or Esther respond in the way they did. No one made two officials plot to kill him. And who could have predicted that Mordecai would be there in just the right place at just the right time to overhear their plot? The mystery is that somehow, through all of these human choices, sorrows, relationships, and apparent coincidences, the living God who rolls over all, is silently and quietly putting the cue ball exactly where he wants it. The second little part of my triangle is the comfort of God's grace. What is really staggering here is that their trauma is part of the story And that their conflicted lives do not in any sense prevent God being kind to them. Do you think that Mordecai and Esther might have been tempted at some point to think, we've blown it? Life's too hard, we've made too many mistakes. Do you ever feel like that? This story should be such an encouragement to us because it shows not just that God is in control of all things, but it tells us that he's also very kind. Mordecai and Esther weren't always right but they were also vulnerable and wounded. And isn't it true? One writer puts it this way that often it is our wounds that send us searching for solutions and meaning. We pour ourselves into work. Thinking success might heal us or into our social lives thinking esteem and affirmation from others might be enough. We numb ourselves with food or drink or entertainment or sex. Perhaps Esther's two names are not just a symbol of her compromise but also of her scars. She's lost both of her parents. She's lost her home. She's lost her freedom. And maybe she's even lost her way. As one of God's people. I, I think in Esther here we see. A person who is compromised. And in need of repentance. But also someone who is traumatised. And in need of healing. Her story is therefore an even deeper story of God's grace, isn't it? God can save people who are hardened in rebellion. But isn't it sweet that He can also use those who've been crushed by it? And in Mordecai, too, we see God overruling injustice. Sometimes life is not fair. Things don't turn out the way they should have. We're overlooked or forgotten. This story reminds us that God is working the details out. And I I wonder whether this should free us to be patient and calm rather than bitter and anxious. Like them... We too live in a wider world that can be at times terribly complex, sometimes very violent. Haven't we been reminded over this last year of how vulnerable we are to disease and even death? For some of us too, there may be the recollection of childhoods that were fraught with scars of shame or loneliness. And on top of our own traumas, don't we sometimes feel a helpless, helplessness? of watching those that we love suffer. I'm not saying that how we respond doesn't matter. Like Esther and Mordecai, we're responsible beings and we're called to live faithfully and obediently to God. But isn't it a comfort to know that even if we make a wrong turn, through an innocent mistake or even deliberate disobedience or if people or circumstances seem to conspire against us that none of those things can stop God from working out his good purposes his grace shines all the more in the messiness of their lives in this pagan empire thirdly The last bit of my little triangle, the certainty of God's promise. Here's the thing, the larger backdrop to this story. This this story is much bigger than these individuals in a sense. Because centuries earlier, God had entered into a covenant relationship with his people. And here is an evidence that despite them being in exile because of their own moral failure, God has not forgotten that ancient promise. In his great faithfulness, God is still at work to preserve and protect his beloved people from the threat of oblivion. And nothing can thwart his purpose to save his people from this threat. God is not at the mercy of unpredictable events here. He isn't struggling to keep up or backed into a corner. He is the Lord who loves his precious people and his purposes for them are the ones that will ultimately prevail. So their story teaches teaches us that underneath all of this, God is faithful in keeping his promises to his beloved and precious people. I want you to take away this triangle. Take it away. Write it down. Stick it on your fridge at home. I I want it to comfort you. Sometimes we do love to feel that we're in control of our lives. But often we feel caught up in circumstances that are way beyond what we'd planned. And this story reminds us that God's mysterious providence his gracious kindness and the certainty of his promises are the things that really shape our lives despite how we might feel. Will you indulge me though? Because I want to make As we close. One big important leap. I want to pull these three strands together. And I want to overlay them. On the cross. Of Jesus. This is a big leap. This is a big leap. 500 years forward to Jesus coming into the world. Think about this. The cross where Jesus died is the pinnacle of God's mysterious providence. It is the evidence of his gracious kindness to sinners like you and me. And it is the everlasting seal of his promises to his believing people. If you can grasp this afternoon this triangle working in the cross of Jesus you'll be better able to apply it to your own life. In terms of God's mysterious providence in human affairs, no one made Judas Iscariot betray Jesus. No one made Peter deny him. No one made Pontius Pilate or Herod hand Jesus over to be crucified like a criminal. No one made the Jewish religious leaders plot to kill him. All of these people were acting in complete ignorance out of their own self-interest. And yet, and yet, God, despite all of this intrigue and hatred, was working out his plan and purpose, not in spite of those people, but through them to fulfill his ancient promise, to save a people for himself through the death of Jesus in our place. So when Peter preached publicly in Jerusalem, just a few weeks after the resurrection of Jesus, he said this to the crowds who were listening. And the weird tale come up on the screen. This is Peter preaching in Jerusalem. To the crowds. This is what he said. You disowned. The holy and righteous one. And asked that a murderer be released to you instead. That was Barabbas. You killed the author of life. But God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Now. Fellow Israelites, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did your leaders, but this is how God fulfilled what he had foretold through all the prophets, saying that his Messiah would suffer. Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. In other words, humans intended it for evil, but God had already planned it for good. Here's the ultimate triangle of God's exceptional positional play. (laughs) The security of his eternal promises and his gracious kindness to people who get it wrong. What we need more than anything else is for our sins to be wiped out. And they can be because of Jesus and his cross. The innocent one dying in the place of the guilty because of God's love even for sinners. Now Peter's point is not that it doesn't matter what you and I do So just relax, it'll be okay in the end. His great call, and I think the invitation of the book of Esther, is for us to see and grasp God's gracious invitation to come home. To come home to him. Peter said, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out. to turn from ourselves and to turn to the living and loving God who sovereignly rules all things, who is utterly faithful to every one of his promises and who is so wonderfully kind to us in forgiving our failure and reconciling us to himself forever because of Jesus let's bow for a moment shall we we're going to sing in a moment our musicians can can come up but how do you feel today deeply vulnerable morally conflicted unfairly forgotten despite how ye feel despite how we feel here is a God who is gracious and kind Father we thank you for this precious part of your word we thank you for this amazing narrative. We thank you for the rawness and the honesty of the way it doesn't flatten these characters but tells it how it is. How it is, Lord, this, this is how life is for all of us. Messy, um, often ambiguous. Father, we pray that you would point us to, to the pinnacle of your gracious kindness the sending of your son the lord jesus into this world would you point us to him to his cross where forgiveness is found life is found refreshment is found we pray that it would be so for every single one of us and we pray in his name amen